life-changing message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this first Friday episode of Reclamation Theology. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson, and our guest is Kyle Clement. For those of you who aren't familiar with Kyle, loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the religious association Societas Matris Dolorissime, he and Father Chad Ripperger have founded an organization known as Liber Cristo, where he provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institutions in the United States and abroad, as well as establishing the materials and protocols for the same. So, Kyle, welcome again to this episode of Reclamation Theology. Thank you, Angela. It's good to be with you and your listeners this morning. Yes, and it's good to have you. I was listening closely to that quote, St. Paul to Titus, where he talks about the need to give instruction on sound doctrine and to, and to correct those who argue against it. And one of the topics we wanted to talk to you about today is the formation of a Catholic conscience and the need for sound doctrine. There seems to be a lot of confusion, Kyle, between there's one proponent called the seamless garment, which has been taken in a certain direction, and there's another group where the bishops voted that abortion is a preeminent evil and that it takes precedent over others. So something as fundamental as uh, forming a Catholic conscience right now is up for grabs. So I'm glad we have the show Reclamation Theology where we can get back to our roots of right and wrong. Well, thank you, Angela. I think that was the whole um, movement or the whole motivation to do the show was not to foster an agenda as much as to to speak for um, for our faith. And there is um, oftentimes the loudest argument is the weakest argument. And so we're seeing that played out now, especially in politics. And politics has become um, the epitome of that observation where the loudest argument is usually the weakest argument. And we, we struggle to live our faith. We don't know our faith. We lack the courage to live it and the courage to be the conscience of the culture. And we see this affect clergy as well as laity. <clears throat> and so we, you know, we're, we have a generation of of malformed um, clergy, and we have a gener two generations of malformed laity. And so, in many ways, it's literally the blind leading the blind. Kyle, beginning at the beginning, what is our conscience? They talk about following our conscience, having your conscience prevail. What is our conscience? Well, I think that first and foremost is to understand that, and, and I must make this statement, I am not formally trained in theology or in psychology. As Will Rogers would say, uh, all I know is, is what I've lived. And so participating in exorcism um, for several years, you, you realize and you come to understand functional theology, meaning what is functional, what is speculative, because the demon will yield or he will not yield and he will only yield to truth. 
And so I think that the, the first observation we have to make is relativism and modernism is what we live and what we think today, is it different than what the church taught for 19 centuries? The development of what the church taught based upon what our Lord taught. And so I think that's, that's key. Now the terminology, there's been a formalization of terminology with regard to theology and, busy, and um, philosophy. And that, that's, while that's a good thing, oftentimes it militates against direct understanding or the functional usage thereof. For instance, the soldier on the battlefield does not need to know the physics of ballistics to know that if he shoots, it'll have an effect, and if someone shoots at him, it'll have an effect. <laughs> And, and so I think that, that it's key for us to, to not divide along these lines, but to understand that for the foot soldier, the war is a much different activity than it is for the general. Um, and, and so the war is different for the laity than it is for the properly formed clergy and, and for sure for the malformed clergy. So all that having been said, your question was, what is conscience? And so let's look at it from a couple of different ways. And, and what I'll give you will not be the formal definition, theological or uh, philosophy definition of conscience. I'll give you the functional definition of conscience. Conscience is that, that which is in us that tells us right from wrong, clean from unclean, good from bad. It is that function that turns us toward God or away from God. That is our conscience. So you'll hear prick of conscience. And so functionally what happens is we sin. We have a prick of conscience. We have a realization, especially in the examination, uh, in the daily examine, is we say, okay, here is where my conscience is eroding, my, my instrument by which I tell if I'm right in right relationship with God. And that's another way we can look at it is it's an instrument and it constantly needs calibrating. How do you calibrate an instrument? By exposing it to something that is true. For instance, if I'm going to calibrate a scale then I have a weight that I know precisely that it weighs one ounce or one pound or whatever that is. I'll place that weight on the scale to be calibrated, and then the scale will tell me what the scale thinks it weighs. And if it's off, then I have to adjust the scale. This is a very key concept because the way we calibrated our conscience for centuries was through the, th the three legs, the three supports, the three pillars of Catholicism, and they were tradition, magisterium, and scripture. And all three of those have been under vehement attack and, and deformation. So it's difficult to calibrate our conscience, our instrument, modernly. We're not getting this weekly calibration in confession. We're not getting this weekly calibration in homily. We're not getting this weekly calibration whereby our intellect <clears throat> is constantly tuned toward God. And so I'd like to discuss that concept just a little bit because it, that, is a, that is a key is that we are actually deforming our instrument, our conscience, when we are 
developing opinion and we're, we're engaging in secular discourse, especially on politics, to the neglect of our readings of, of Holy Scripture, our readings of the saints, our listening to right doctrine and homilies that reflect right doctrine and tradition. And the, the phraseology, we've, we've lost it. Words have lost their meaning. We, we participate in activities which deform our conscience, which deform our properly formed Catholic conscience. Can you kill your conscience? You can severely wound it. You can't kill it because you are a creature and you have a relationship with Creator, whether you want it or not. You can render your conscience more abound. You can greatly uh, wound it. You can render it in almost inoperative, but there is no conscience beyond being pricked, which is the realization that I have sinned against you and against God. And ultimately, this is the, the prodigal's realization in the pig pen, is the pricking of conscience. And the phrase in the, in the scriptures is, and he came to his senses. And so at some point, didn't, it doesn't matter how, how deep the life of depravity is, and we see this in practicing Satanists, it's, and it's interesting, there, there's, there's something they won't do, or that they realize <clears throat> this is so deviant and, and then they, uh, that prick of conscience awakens them to the fog that they're in and they realize I have come so far and I've fallen into such a depth of depravity that I've, I've ruined my relationship or damaged my relationship with God. And then there's the Psalm 130, the profundest response to that, which is out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And this is the primordial cry, the, the, the cry of creature to creator. And God hears that. So it doesn't matter how deep we've fallen into depravity. The prick of conscience, none of us are beyond that. And so it's a good question that you ask because it gives you an indication of prayer. And that is just that awake, O oh sleeper, all of us who have uh, breath, all of us who are creature, that we would, something would happen that would draw us to look up toward creator, that we would, we would leave that ad hominem posture and, and be ad orientum, that focused on God, even if it's just in that moment. Because this is the beginning of conversion, is this realization that we've, we've damaged relationship with God and that there is in fact a God. Um, I think that that's something that we miss is we often pray wanting to affect behavior, uh, not conversion. And that opens up a whole other topic. But speaking to that, can one kill one's conscience? You can severely impair it, you can render it more abound, but you cannot kill it. What, what are the symptoms that someone exhibits when their conscience has been deeply wounded? Well, the, the two primary symptoms that we see is self-justification for behavior they know to be sinful or contrary to the faith. That's number one. Number two is a desire to preserve or to affect or erect reputation, meaning and in this moment one seeks the affirmation of one's peers or other creatures to the neglect of the uh, relationship with Creator. So those are your two main landmarks and I think they're very sobering and we realize that in many places our instrument is in fact um, damaged. 
And the prayers of the Auxilium Christianorum today is the prayer of humility, litany of humility. Very, very good. Um, it falls on Friday when we commemorate on every Friday the passion of our Lord. But our properly formed conscience helps direct our thoughts to our Lord, our Lady, uh, to our faith. And so those thoughts are never far away from the properly formed conscience. And the litany of humility helps fine-tune that conscience on a Friday. And it speaks to both things that I'm talking about. One is self-justification, and the other one is the desire uh, for reputation or self-image where we're looking for the esteem of others or the esteem of ourselves, our self-esteem, rather than to be pleasing to God. And I think that's a key point, is that um, there are many, many good people, people who do good, but they're more concerned with how their fellow man thinks about them, their peers think about them, than they are how God thinks about them. And they're more concerned with being self-justified in their actions, and so they become the focal point. So how do you see that, say, playing out in today's world? Are there practical examples that come to mind, Kyle, of those two things? Say, we're turning on the TV. What are we looking at that is a living, breathing example of those two issues of a deadening of conscience? Okay, Angela, you ask a very important question, a very poignant question. And so I'm going to repeat it to be sure I understand it. When we turn on the television, what are we looking at that kills our conscience? Is that what you're asking? Yes, or as an example of killing, an example of people on the television that have wounded their conscience and so and their actions are kind of it's kind of like you go to a doctor's office where does it hurt and they say my heart hurts we're we're when you look at the symptoms of a conscience that's been deadened what behavior do you see that is symptomatic of people on television or on the news all right so what i'm going to say is going to sting um you'll get that warning from me periodically (laughs) okay your question, and, and let me rephrase it, your question is, when we turn on the television, what are we looking at that wounds our conscience or that further debilitates our conscience? Is that accurate? Yes. What we're looking at is our own reflection reflected back in the TV screen. If you're watching television, you're wounding your conscience, very simply. What if you're watching EWTN? You're wounding your conscience. Why is that, Kyle? You're wounding your conscience because you're stepping out of the participatory role and you're now in a spectator role. We are the church militant. We're not the church observant. We're not the church hanging out. We're not the church reticent. We're the church militant. And often when you're watching someone pray, you're not praying. When we're listening to a recorded rosary, we're not praying. There, there has to be that active participation. And so while watching EWTN is better than watching something else, there's not the merit involved as if one were doing their own prayer, were participating in an active life of their own faith. When we watch that, when anytime we're watching television, um, we're, we're living vicariously, we're living virtually, we're not living, we're not truly living. And, and like I said, this is going to sting because a lot of us do these activities um, that bring us a certain emotional consolation, but they're not 
helping us order our life to an active and vibrant practice of the faith. Well, what if you're watching, you know, you want to see what's going on in the world and what happened today and what people's positions are on different issues? None of that, Kyle, you would say is appropriate? All of that, I mean, none of that brings you, will bring you a spiritual consolation. Do you want to be a saint? Me? Yes, of course. We all say that, but these are the activities of those who wish to be saints is is that it's it has to be focused on our Lord. We're either focused on God or we're not. And so, again, it's a very militant stance. We are powerless to affect politics by watching them daily. If we vote, if we understand the issues as should be told to us cleanly um, and should be explained to us cleanly by those more knowledgeable than us, but we're missing that voice. We're missing, we're missing from um, our leaders, our clerics and our lay leaders, the clear vision of what it is to be Catholic because every one of those visions is, is they take it, they polish it, they give you a different aspect of it. And so it, it's difficult to find that, that pure voice that is telling you this is, this is how to be Catholic. This is how to be militantly Catholic. Getting back to the idea of conscience, Kyle, if someone wanted to check to see if their conscience is in right order, what steps would they take? You mentioned three that you look at, which was tradition, magisterium, and scripture. So be, assume we're beginning at the beginning saying, is my conscience calibrated? Okay. From a traditional standpoint, I think that you look, um, look at uh, moral theology. Am I ethical? Do I have integrity? Does my, is my faith reflected in my daily actions? Or am I making um, negotiations or capitulations? Or am I acquiescing in certain areas for a job, for a friendship, for this, for that? Are there, is there any places, what's the low spot in my wall of virtue? Do I practice virtue equally to all creatures? Do, do I extend charity, Christian charity, love of God, manifest as love of neighbor? Do I do that to all? Am I perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect? Perfect meaning is, is consistent. Am I, do I love all? And so there's a lot of work to be done in our, in our own sovereignty, in our own fortress, if you will, before we go to espousing, uh, espousing ideas or where someone should uh, should change, and all I'm saying is I'm I'm the greatest among sinners. I'm not I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm I'm looking past the beam in my eye at, at, at when I'm speaking here. Is is the the first element to formation of conscience has to start with our own interior before we can expose the conscience to the world. It has to be properly calibrated in a safe environment. That safe environment is the prayer of your home, good spiritual direction from someone who understands that we have to constantly work in and around the area of virtue. And so what is the traditional view of virtue? What is the traditional view of the relationship between the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal works of mercy? What is the traditional view 
on the important things, the things that have eternal consequence and their primacy over created things, even the earth, even um, other other things. There is a wonderful prayer in circulation out there. Um, I've been handing out these prayer cards. It's a prayer to Our Lady, exterminatrix of all heresy. Wow. I think it's very, very important for us to be praying these this prayer. Um, I don't have a card right at hand, but it's to Our Lady, exterminatrix of all uh, heresies. I ordered this card from the Bond family. I don't know if you're familiar with Pete Bond and his family, which make prayer cards, but you'll be able to Google it and find it there. But essentially it talks about the clear understanding of what is important, what is not important, and the heresies and, and errors of our age, uh, which is the elevation of created things and creatures over the Creator. So that's first of all, is the, is the what is the traditional look at this? And um, then what is the scriptural overlay where it mentions this, where we found that in history, in scriptural history, when Israel and when Christianity became um, ad hominem or focused away from God, this is when their relationship with God suffered. The sin cycle of the Old Testament was largely when Israel was trying to be like its neighbors. They wanted a king. They wanted certain things. They wanted to be Hellenized. They wanted so when any time. Israel engaged in politics, it did not go well. And Catholicism is what Judaism looks like if you believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the continuation of God's chosen people. God chose the Israelites, we as Gentiles choose God, and then through the adoption process are joined to him. But we're still supposed to be his manifestation, his people, a people who live according to those tenets and teachings that reflect God to the rest of humanity. Ultimately, that's what it is to be Catholic. Are you reflecting the values that our Lord preached, that he talked about, that he taught us, the integrity of creation, the integrity of the human person? Are we a living example of that? Ultimately, this is God's manifestation uh, when he becomes, his love becomes manifest in humanity in choosing Israel as this, this chosen people, this model, model people, when they were in right relationship with God, when they were being, acting as God's people and they had an interior disposition, they were unassailable. They were, they were um, unconquerable. But they give that high ground away in the same way that we're giving it away. There were things that were incompatible with being um, an Israeli. There were things that were incompatible with being one of God's chosen people. There are things that are incompatible with being a Catholic. There are political things. There are all kinds of things that are simply incompatible and cannot be reconciled with Catholicism. Kyle, I have, I have one for you. I was just listening to Scott Hahn, who did like a 60-second spot, and he was talking about being accountable. Not only are we accountable for every word that we say, but we're also accountable for every silence. And I think, you know, in today's world, what do you think about one of the things being incompatible with being a Catholic as silence? Silence in view of what's going on and what we're being taught and told and 
directed to do? Well, while he brings up an interesting point, I think you have to look at it in a traditional sense, and that is, do you have a, a duty and an obligation? If so, to whom do you have the duty and to whom do you have the obligation? And so I think that oftentimes we, this becomes um, corrupted, if you will, or twisted when our first and primary obligation is to the souls that our Lord has placed in our care providentially and through vocation. So listen to this language very carefully. So the first obligation is to the souls that our Lord has put in our care providentially. Which and would be whom, Kyle? What souls has the Lord put in our care? My wife and my children. Your wife and your children. It's a bishop. It is your flock. It is your flock within the geographical boundaries of your episcopate. If you're a priest, it is your flock. It is the souls within the geographical boundaries of your parish. And so what happens is we go off on these false crusades, leaving our homelands to be picked over by the enemy while we're fighting a fight that is not our fight. We are first and foremost responsible and will give answer to the souls that were in our care. We see this wreckage, this carnage in all kinds of people who work ministries and their own families are a wreck. We're, we're leaving our homes and fighting a war that is not our fight to the neglect of those souls which are directly in our care. And so while we have an obligation to speak, that obligation is first and foremost manifest in those souls which God has placed in our care, our wife, our children, those over whom um, we have a direct influence. And so to fling your voice out into the void, the railings against a political machine that is diabolically inspired, this is a wasting of, of your voice. This is a wasting of your vitality if you're not first discharging this duty totally in your own family. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy on deacons and bishops and who they should be. So the right-ordered family is a manifestation of the, of the right-ordered household. I think this is so important we skip over it because the focus becomes on what do I want to do rather than what is my duty and obligation to those souls that God has placed in my care. Does that obligation change as your children grow up? It definitely changes. As we move into matriarchy and patriarchy, then the obligation changes. Father Ripperger is very, very clear on some of his talks about uh, power and authority. He's writing a book which will shortly be published on this. And this area has become widely misunderstood um, and misapplied. But within this discussion, it's very clear that we have certain duties and obligations as fathers to our sons and our daughters, and they're different, and how they're discharged is different. Um, and so I would urge you to listen to some of his talks, um, get this book, because I think it'll be a very, very pivotal book, because um, it brings back a clarity to an understanding that, that we've lost. We see the disorder uh, response toward authority in our clergy. Um, we, we see many of our, our priests and deacons who, um, and bishops who are disordered in their relationship to right authority. And this, this trickles down somewhat. This is that self-justified aspect to the deformed conscience that I was speaking of, is if we become our own authority, then we're, we're um, 
we're off the reservation, so to speak. So you were talking, Kyle, before I jumped in, you were talking about um, living our lives as a Catholic. And I was asking you about whether speaking, not speaking when in the, in the face of evil. I'm thinking, for example, a woman was telling me the other day that her daughter-in-law sent an email about voting for someone who was moderate and sent it and said, I hope you'll consider voting for someone who's moderate. And she was in the shower and she was thinking, oh, do I say anything to her? Because the person who was supposedly moderate is in favor of abortion up to the last minute or even after the baby's born. So she didn't know, do I speak to my daughter-in-law and upset her that she just sent to all these people saying vote for this moderate person? So she ended up emailing back and saying, I don't know how someone can be considered moderate if they're in favor of abortion up, up to the last minute. And so she, her thing was, well, do I say something to my daughter-in-law and risk offending her? Do I keep silent? Or, or do I just speak out and lay it out there? What do you so think? Let's, let's put it in traditional terms. <clears throat> the, uh, the primary objective is salvation of souls. And so if we look at the spiritual works of mercy, they are in the first three are in this order. Um, and, and they're in this ranking purposefully. First one is to instruct the ignorant. The second one is to counsel the doubtful. And the third is to admonish the sinner. What we often do as modern Catholics is we go straight to the third one and we want to admonish the sinner. <laughs> and so the, the first one, Bill's relationship, there's a very sacred relationship between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, very sacred relationship. And so there, that needs to be built and constantly affirmed on tenets of the faith. I would propose that a, a good way to go about that would have been to say, um, I cannot in good conscience, I cannot in a Catholic conscience vote or endorse this position. And then that's the end of it. That's the, that starts the conversation. That's the end of her response then hopefully the daughter-in-law would say, and why not? Because the response to a question is often heard. The response to unsolicited advice or opinion is seldom heard. And so if she wants to know why this holy woman, who is the mother of the man she loves, the mother of her uh, <clears throat> husband, the grandmother of her children, this woman whom she respects, uh, this woman whom she wants the inner peace <clears throat> and the prayer life, if this woman has a uh, hesitancy or even a, a firm statement that she can't vote for this position, then I want to know about that because that's part of her personality. Yeah. And you see the whole different conversation that's going to develop? I do. It, but where it gets interesting is, so let's assume the daughter-in-law is Catholic and that from what she understands, many, many Catholics in leadership positions are also Catholics and have a Catholic conscience and they're okay with it, which kind of circles back to the beginning of the show, which is what is Catholic conscience and how is it formed? How is it calibrated? Okay, so see, the, the, the Catholic conscience is not okay with anything. Okay means that <clears throat> I'm not going to oppose it, <clears throat> but I'm not going to promote it. 
that's not it's not us that's not Catholic it's it's God or nothing it's it's the faith or nothing and so there's no lateral movement there's no such thing as well this doesn't have any impact on my journey to heaven there's no lateral movement every breath you take every move you make every thought you have takes you closer to or further from God so the idea that someone can quote be okay with it meaning they either don't have an opinion or they're not gonna they're not going to live their faith in this particular area this is a non sequitur we as Catholics can't do that so we're called to make that determination on everything is this clean or unclean does this take me closer to or further from God is this consistent with my faith or is it inconsistent with my faith and I will propose to you that every single thing we do is either consistent with our faith or inconsistent with our faith this is our Lord in Matthew 18 I come with a sword not to unite but to divide to to set you on the right path and so it's a constant study in determining is this clean or unclean and that's why the Catholic conscience has to be properly calibrated and used we can't not use that instrument so, so go, ahead. go ahead no you go ahead Kyle I apologize no, no, that's so it's it's that's one of those instances where we're looking at self-justification, because if I do not exercise my faith in this area because I want to achieve something else that I perceive to be a social justice or a good or this, then I've, I've departed the avenue of grace. I've raised up an impediment to grace because now I've changed my faith to suit my definition. Our faith can't be of our own construct so that's where I was going with this so the the dilemma is I've interviewed people in this matter is that they look at they're using the expression seamless garment so the what what I understand they're saying to me is okay you have the issue of abortion and there are some Catholics who don't think, who thinks that abortion is justified in certain circumstances. And then in addition to that issue of abortion, you have the issue of immigration and jobs and health care, et cetera. And to them, it's all part of this issue of being what they're calling pro-life. So how would you deconstruct that, Kyle? Well, I think that you look at, again, let's apply the template of the primacy of the spiritual works of mercy over the corporal works of mercy. Our Lord taught this. This has always been clear in tradition that it's about salvation of souls, and that's the primary goal. It's the first canon. It's the first tenet of our faith is that it's about salvation of souls. So if I deny immigration to someone, is this a damnable sin? Possibly. If I kill someone, is this a damnable sin? Absolutely. And so you have to look at it from a standpoint of there are rankings, and this is where we've lost in modernism and relativism the understanding of the severity of sin. Abortion re was reserved to an Episcopal uh, for absolution, meaning that for centuries the travesty of abortion the murdering of an unborn child was, uh, or even a child up until the age of reason, that was relegated to having to be forgiven or absolved and that confession having to be heard by a bishop. And there's a reason why. 
is if that's a human sacrifice is occurring within his geographical area there was an understanding for centuries that this was a satanic practice Bottom. can you repeat that Kyle why you just referred to it as human sacrifice could you just repeat what you just said the the uh, uh, sin of abortion or the the incident of abortion the killing of a of a person below the age of reason including the unborn was always seen and it should always be seen as satanic sacrifice it is a child sacrifice and it comes right out of, of scripture with regard to the sacrifices to, to Moloch and to other demons that require human sacrifice that is at the heart of what we're dealing with right now whether people realize it or not whether they want to understand it or not but the killing of a human being be under the age of reason particularly the unborn the most defenseless is a form of satanic sacrifice it was seen this way it was understood to be this and so this is why this sin was reserved to the episcopate or the bishops for one to confess and receive absolution the firm amendment of life and the understanding of the severity and depravity of the taking of the life of an unborn human was most egregious and the church understood this for centuries it understood this and that sin was reserved to the to the bishop so if someone came into the confessional to a parish priest and began to confess this then it was his duty to take this person to the bishop because if, if human sacrifice is occurring within the geographical boundaries of one's episcopate the diocese then the bishop is now put on notice that there is a, an active satanic element working against his office the apostolic office in this geographical area the bishop would in fact con confront or be in the presence of a diabolical entity but more specifically to the point canon 1172 makes it clear that the bishop is the exorcist within the diocese and his presence within the diocese is exorcistic so when he leaves to go to the USCCB meeting when he leaves to go to this or go to that or travel around the world that's that's a home without a father that's that's a home without a patriarch that's a geographical area that's left to the incursion of the enemy. Mm -hmm. So continue along the path you were at about abortion. So there's a ranking of, of sin. There, there is a ranking of offenses against God and against the church. Abortion is one of those, and modernly they use the term non-negotiable, but it's one of those sins that is a patent indicator of satanic involvement. The demon will be present to child sacrifice, to the taking of a life. He will be present. He has been present ever since the first taking of life, which was Cain killing Abel. This is not opinion. We just see it functionally. It plays out in exorcism. We hear it over and over and over again. But one grows in power, influence, and ability to command lesser demons through sacrifice of humans. This is the coin of the realm in, in the diabolical that one gains influence as a wizard, wizard, satanic priest, witch, practitioner, to the extent one is willing to shed innocent blood and the one, to the extent one is willing to sacrifice um, to Satan 
against the integrity of creation, against the office of trust. If you take this to the next understandable step, a priest is a priest forever. Once his hands are consecrated, once he is ordained, everything he does has a ritualistic element. So the pedophilia, the abuse, the even heterosexual misbehavior, any of that done by a priest has now, and ha as soon as he does it, it has a satanic element. It's not as if a lay person does this. So we need to understand the severity of, of, of sin and the depravity. And the more abound our um, numbed conscience, if you will, is just now starting to to wake up and realize, hey, this is wrong. This this is patently wrong. But evil militates to absurdity. And so if we start by saying it's permissible to kill a child in the first trimester, then the logical progression is it's permissible to kill a child all the way until they're 18. And then after they're 18, it's going to be permissible for whatever reason for the state to take their life because we've already had this precedent. You have to see the progression of evil or the, or the degradation, the descent of evil. And so as we're willing to lay aside common sense and say homosexual people can be married, these when we're willing to give up the language and the understanding of our faith in this way, then our conscience becomes so deformed that the instrument is no longer, um, we, we can't apply our Catholic conscience because it's a it's a deformed instrument it's a defective instrument so in summary on the seamless garment argument that they're all pro-life issues and they all have to be taken into consideration when we're selecting who will lead us and govern us your response is number one there's a primacy of the spiritual acts of mercy versus the corporal acts of mercy of which the ones that have been cited are all corporal acts of mercy and that within the spiritual acts of mercy, we have to also look at the fact that the level of evil of abortion is so great that it takes precedence over the level of evil of the other ills that they're trying to remedy. Is that correct? That's correct. And my answer to the seamless garment movement, which just the use of the term is offensive to me, why is that, Kyle? Why is it offensive? Because it, it refers to the garment that was taken off of our Lord before he was crucified. And, and it, the implication or indication is this is the way Jesus would have wanted it. I didn't um, know that. I didn't know where the origin of it was. Yeah, the origin of seamless garment is, and they removed his, uh, his cloak, and they did not divide it because it was seamless, woven from top to bottom. Um, read the Passion account. This is the garment for which they cast lots, um, and they didn't divide it. And so that's so the imagery is offensive to me. I saw a good bumper sticker the other day. It said, "Political correctness is offensive to me." <laughs> and so I think that it's interesting that the the tolerant are intolerant of orthodoxy. This is when you see this illogical argument as it collapses in on, on itself. The statement, there is no absolute truth. How do you know that's absolute truth? 
And so these statements collapse on themselves. But our Lord was very clear in the primacy of uh, of the spiritual works of mercy. But my response to them would be very short, and that is this. If you restore the dignity of life to the unborn, the primacy of life, then all of the rest of the grace flows from it. And we, the love that flows from that and the recognition of our obligation to our fellow man will be made present. But until you do that, you're playing Robin Hood. At the end of the day, Robin Hood was a thief. When, when you demand an entitlement, when you demand a right or you demand a certain thing and you impose it at the expense of another, this is not Christian charity. This is tyranny. And no matter what term it's put in, it's still tyranny. And the idea that these things are equal, this is this is modernist and relativist um, movement that is coming, Luciferian movement that's come into the church. They are not equal. It's very, very clear that the salvation of souls is the primary uh, concern and mission of our Lord. Hmm. A lot to think about, Kyle. A lot to think about. There's a lot at stake in the next month. We were just doing a show yesterday with uh, American Life League on the systemic racism of Planned Parenthood and that they've been targeting their locations for the murder of black children. And then, of course, we know that those black children are then dismembered while they're alive and used for health care for vaccines that were being forced to take the rampant systemic racism of abortion and the impact that has had and the, the silence on the part of Black Lives Matter and the people who want to get rid of systemic racism when their own the children are being murdered and used for experimentation and, and we hear nothing. We hear nothing. That is not the part of the formation of the conscience. It's absolutely not. And I think that to take the high ground, to very much take the high ground, we have to absolutely, as Catholics, expunge racism, expunge any of that from our language. Yes. Because it doesn't matter what color these children are. They're children, they're creatures, they have souls. And so to inject racism into this is a false, is a, is a false thing. It's, it's, a, it's an emotional di dist distraction. We have to see the, the cosmic implications of what's happening and that is that there is a, there is a murder there is the taking of an innocent life it doesn't matter what color that child is it doesn't matter what color the parents are that's irrelevant but if you if, you, if we insist on talking about that then we lose the true impact of what's going on um, but you know, Kyle, it's so, it was so interesting. We had a high school student as part of the panel, and she said in her Catholic high school that she believes most of the Catholic kids are okay with abortion, but they're not okay with racism. So that they would oppose Planned Parenthood, not necessarily on the argument that it was abortion and the taking of a human life because they they have come to the conclusion that that's a woman's choice but they would be opposed to um abortion if it was considered racism that that's the thinking of that of what that's what she believes her students and her peers think do you see the lack of clarity do i yes 
Yeah, and so I think that that's what we speak to. The souls that are in our care, um, back to your reference to, to Dr. Hahn, I think that's where the primary obligation is, is to talk to our children and say, this is why that stance is incompatible with our faith. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a completeness of the truth. Everything has to flow from this sanctity of human life. Um, it, it has to flow from the fact that the soul has no color. The, the fact that those humans, the, the color, the race is irrelevant. It is absolutely irrelevant to the primary first principle, which is sanctity of all life. We have a lot of education to do even in our own, fo- our home, our own homes. Kyle, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Tell us a little bit about Libra Cristo. Libra Cristo um, was formed out of an, a need to um, teach Catholic liberation principles. Um, there's been a lot of movement, uh, a lot of influence, Protestant influence into um, Catholic, the Catholic Church with regard to deliverance and exorcism, all of which is liber- can be described as liberation. The Church didn't make the de- differentiation that's largely a Protestant construct that says uh, we must determine if it's deliverance or laity or, or exorcism and therefore the laity can do certain things. It's just a return to the norms of proper authority and power structures. Uh, Who can do what? Who can do it safely? How do we assist clergy? How do we um, develop diocesan protocols to deal with the ever-increasing diabolical uh, influence in our society, largely because we've lost our Catholic conscience, functionality of our Catholic conscience. We don't tell clean from unclean and then we get into trouble uh, that, that may have a diabolical element attached. And so it's a multifaceted organization that's designed to educate, to, to give formation, and to actually work in um, liberation ministry. You can go to www.libercristo.org for more information. Uh, there's several free talks on there, um, several free things that are there that would... would um, expose you to the teaching and to the understanding. Um, It's the traditional uh, Catholic response built upon monasticism and prayer um, on how to dispel the enemy, how to shore up your faith, uh, how to live as a Catholic in this modern world. And there's just a lot of good, um, there's a lot of good resources there. Um, it's, It's growing, it's growing quickly. I think people are hungry for the truth. I think they're hungry for straight talk. I think they're hungry, um, they have a conscience, and, and when they hear something they know to be true, there's a resonance in that conscience, it, there's an interior resonance in that conscience, and you're not going to get that resonance out of the secular sources and out of poli- politically active clergy, you're, you're just simply not going to get that resonance. And so, how do you form that Catholic conscience, that common conscience? Read, pray read this, the daily readings because Catholics around the world are reading those readings. Pray the divine office because religious and others around the world are reading those readings. And so that's what the, the divine office was designed to do, the daily readings of the mass, the universality of what the Catholic is reading on a daily or should be reading on a daily basis and praying on a daily basis unites us in prayer, it unites us in thought. And so you begin to participate in a common conscience. If we discuss the martyrs for the day, 
if we discuss the second reading for the day, if we make this what we talk about instead of politicians and what the latest thing that was done by some group, if we make this the opening remark when we greet fellow Catholics, then you're going to be surprised at what happens to the integrity of your conscience, the quality of your conversation, and the quality of your life. And again, what's the website, Kyle? www.librecristo.org. That was wonderful. Kyle, could we close with a prayer, please? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord God Almighty, Ancient of Days, you who bring cosmos out of chaos and order out of disorder, we ask you, especially as we approach the nativity of your Blessed Mother, to be mindful everywhere and always of her docility, her willingness to do your will, her desire to do what you want because you want it, her desire to be formed by you. May we ask her intercession for ourselves, for our clergy, for our leaders. Blessed Mother, be present to our conscience. May we be always and everywhere mindful. And as St. Maximilian Kolbe said, let us say nothing or think nothing. We would not have the Blessed Mother sign her name to. Lord, we thank you for life. We thank you for this opportunity to live in these times which you have deigned. Give us the courage and strength to speak the truth, to live the truth, and to be the truth. In Christ's most holy and precious name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.